You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, it's time to get into your favourite sport, bashing the banks. And who better than Denise Braley, the president of the Banking and Finance Consumer Support Association. So, Denise, we spoke back in episode 534 uh, late March this year before the Royal Commission really kicked off. What, What stage are we at now? Sort of seems like there's a lull in proceedings. Well, I guess the very fact that in December the then Prime Minister called for the Royal Commission and appointed uh, Mr Hayne as Commissioner, we've just been uh, hearing things but that are on a very uh, very narrow terms of reference that he has to work with. So he at the moment is saying he's put the onus back on the government as to whether they wish to extend the Royal Commission or not. But at the moment, he's only spent six days in total on what we say is the biggest scandal of all is the mortgage fraud. Mm, Well, I've seen the Treasurer say that he's open to support the extension. The Prime Minister said that as well. That's what they've said in public. Uh, Why aren't we seeing anything play out in terms of the actual official uh, length of the inquiry? Well, it's fairly tricky, really, because the government is really saying we would support it if Hayne put it forward, but the commissioner is not uh, suggesting that he's going to do that. So it's really a stalemate. In other words, uh, as I understand it, Commissioner Hayne is saying, if the government want me to extend it, then they've got to instruct me to do so. I'm guided by their current terms of reference, which doesn't allow for that. As the election looms closer and closer, it seems like uh, this might be fobbed off for a while. So, Denise, uh, what have been the core findings so far? There's been plenty of shocking headlines. What, What has stood out for you? Well, at least we got those six days up on mortgage fraud, which is what I've mainly been involved in. But I guess what is standing out is that Even a weak terms of reference Royal Commission has managed to bring out uh, um, the overall picture that there are serious issues of malpractice at best or more sinister overtones. In the whole of the banking sector, he managed to get out of uh, one banker that, yes, they are acting as a cartel. So if this prevails, then you've also pulled out the fact that there's misconduct in superannuation, misconduct in insurance, and, of course, in banking and in particular mortgages. Certainly. Well, we've seen uh, the banks hand over millions of dollars in compensation so far, and some are quantifying this as upwards of $7.4 billion in total. Uh, This could drag on into uh, the start of next year. There's all sorts of ramifications that are flowing from this commission. Uh, do you think uh, the sort of the fines they're paying are significant enough? Oh, no, I think the some of the things that have come out in the Hain Royal Commission are close to the wind with criminal conduct. And I think until we deal with penalties for white-collar crime which I wrote a report on in 2015 for that hearing, the hearings never took place. 
So, truly, you start from a position of what sort of penalty should be applied to those that are doing widespread malpractice within the banking sector. Someone has to be responsible for the orders that were given for certain practices to develop and prosper. I noticed the government is peddling furiously to install some sort of uh, increase in those enforcements with the Treasury Laws Amendment Bill of 2018, which uh, leads to some white-collar criminals receiving 10 years uh, in jail, which is a, 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 quite a, a step up uh, from the two to th- four years, I think it was, previously. But uh, what sort of recommendations did you make in 2015 and why did that inquiry not happen into more serious penalties for quite clearly uh, criminal behaviour? Well, one of the problems has been the blockage in the pipes of ASIC and APRA that the regulators will argue that the policies delivered by this present government during the last five to six years have not permitted them to take any further action than what they've been doing and just simply going after a couple of brokers, which is just shameful. So one of the biggest problems is that there is already a laws in place under the criminal code in the various states for, uh, and I'm not an expert on this, but I do know that I argued in this report that the current situation is 10 years. Now, I, I don't think the 10 years was put in three or four years ago. I may stand corrected on that. It's been there a long time. But what's happened is that I have called for that if there are serious criminal behavior of the sorts we've been looking at, then those responsible should be looking down the barrel of 25 years. And I have written in a 40-odd page report why it should be no parole and a seizure of assets that are the result of um, criminality taking place. Mm, I know that Treasury Laws uh, Bill of 2018 did talk about 10 years. So, uh, yeah, that is something, but uh, it doesn't really fill me with great confidence when the new CEO of ASIC, which has been, uh, you know, alongside APRA are widely condemned, but the new CEO, uh, James Shipton, uh, has uh, has shipped on in from Goldman Sachs. So uh, this revolving door between uh, these giant banking uh, megaliths into uh, uh, the, the supposed regulatory bodies. Is there any talk about hiring genuine outsiders, perhaps more from a audit background. Uh, it's, it's hard to find people with the right skills to do this work that aren't somehow tied up in this uh, fire sector of finance, insurance and real estate uh, with their, their game of mates credentials uh, riding on the line. Yes, well, for too long, Carl, Australia has been out there suggesting we have no white-collar crime in Australia. And we do. We have so much, we don't know what to do with it. So therefore, in order to find somebody experienced enough, uh, I mean, this is tongue-in-cheek, but you don't know how many times over the last 18 years I have had comments on websites suggesting I should be head of ASIC. 
I mean, this is serious stuff. No one understands this white-collar crime out there. I mean, I laughed when ASIC said it was teaching the federal police about fraud. Uh, and they said that on the stand in a Senate hearing a few years back. I can't believe that you've got anyone that may, except from international basis, where they genuinely had home runs on nailing white-collar criminals. That's what you need. So Shipton coming from a, a background such as he does, he's not the person that's going to achieve that. He's not been on my phone to ask me what the fraud is. And, and all that on top of uh, the ACCC having $200 million cut from its budget since the Liberal Party came into power. So uh, insiders and budgetary cutbacks not really helping. No, that's right. But that goes back. I remember in 1998 when they formed the new ASIC that was going to be the be-all and end-all. They took the consumer protection job, if you like, for want of a better word, and responsibility from the ACCC and landed it on ASIC's desk. And the investigators at ASIC were all cut loose and fired or made redundant or whatever. There was 50% of the employees of ASIC were told to move on, 50% in that 1998 period. So it goes way back to there where people were then hired for skills in investigations, particularly, say, police that are sometimes have got two or three years' experience in the fraud squad, someone like that. That's what you need to start really doing a proper investigation. And these are big crimes, very big crimes. So the continual watering down of these regulatory bodies, uh, it's a form of uh, what they call as control fraud. Uh, uh, the banks themselves then working through the code of banking practice and rendering it unenforceable. Uh, the Compliance Monitoring Committee, uh, the, the BFSO, uh, they've all been turned into lame ducks that uh, really ha are toothless tigers uh, is there any sign from this Royal Commission that uh, the government's going to enact meaningful reforms of, of these sort of oversight bodies? No, because the flavour of their policies for a very, very long time, going back to 1998 with John Howard, Peter Costello, and uh, certainly Malcolm Turnbull was in amongst that group at the time, uh, their one thing has always been buyer beware. They want to turn the clock back to the 1950s and 60s of buyer beware. That's obvious. And I've been very critical about that in my reports to Parliament. So therefore, you've got laws that like when Julia Gillard created FOFA, that was a good idea, the, free, the uh, future of financial advice. But the moment that Tony Abbott got into power, those, those same provisions for consumer protection were watered down. Now, I'm not talking about uh, which political flavour you should all be looking at. I'm really stating fact that it is obvious that all the lobbying I did during the Liberal government's earlier reign was all about consumer protection but I was then complaining at the end of that ride there was no consumer protection now since Tony Abbott has got back on board and then from there on 
even with Malcolm Turnbull, who the, people thought that he might change things, we still have buyer beware. Association looking in at uh, the Royal Commission into banking, corruption, and uh, what really should be covered. Let's go back to the interview. These are hugely complex documents that uh, people of all ages that are expected to wade through the fine print. Is it really fair that uh, the onus is put entirely on the consumer? No, not at all. I mean, the consumers realize that these documents are are so complex they're so large and they've got traps in them all over the place and these were what i'm saying is the the crux of the criminality they're actually intentional ways to trick people into believing they've got a certain type of product when it's actually a product of a different um, plan to what they expected it was uh, Deloisio, Mr. Deloisio, in his term in ASIC, that pointed out that I'm a lawyer and I don't even understand these contracts or these PDFs or every other instrument that is uh, supposed to make consumers read and be responsible for what they're signing. It's not possible in any shape or form in today's world. So we don't want to put it back to buyers beware. The reason we don't is because all these laws were put in place to protect consumers. So the government reasons, well, protecting consumers is expensive. On the other hand, if you don't protect consumers, it affects the economy. So the expense to the taxpayers and every other person not even involved in the products is going to be alarmingly high. Listeners, we're talking to Denise Braley, the president of the Banking and Finance Consumer Support Association, as we dig back into the Royal Commission. And Denise, talking about these lengthy, these detailed legal documents we're uh, forced to sign when it comes to taking out a mortgage, uh, there's been a bit of concern around what the actual mortgagee receives in terms of uh, uh, their documentation versus what's stored on the books. Uh, are mortgagees given all the details they should be when they sign these legal documents? They're not given copies of what they sign. Now, in particular, the first document you sign is an application to get a loan. This is pre-approval. The contract is post-approval. So I teach people the relevant time period is pre-approval. And that is an 11-page document containing your assets, your liabilities, your income, and, and any expenses you might have in the cost of living. 
Now, that's where all the fraud is contained. Yet what we found was more than common practice. It was uh, it was a, a, accepted by the industry, the banking industry across Australia, that people would only be presented with three pages of that document. They do not fill in the document. Even the three pages they get is all pre-filled in and presented for three signatures, one on each page. They're not required to sign each page because they don't see, deliberately don't see, the other eight pages. They're intentionally hidden from the customer. So the third page of this um, three-page version that's presented for signatures is uh, small print to say I fully read and understood everything in this document. If that then and has been presented to court, it becomes an 11-page document. It suddenly, you know, has a spirit of growth. And therefore, the bank will rely on the 11 pages to say, well, you signed to say that you earned 200 grand when the poor person is a pensioner. And that's how the fraud is conducted. But it's not done by the sellers, the bank managers or the brokers. It, this document is done by the actual computer program after the broker has sent it into the processing centre. And it's put on what they call another document called the tracker. But unfortunately, the uh, uh, what I found was that the broker's uh, don't know what the fraud is. They've signed them themselves to get a loan for themselves or their parents and run foul of this problem. So the the whole uh, uh, system is geared on getting people to sign something that they have not filled out. Why not get everyone in Australia to fill out their own form? And even so, they should immediately be given a copy of the whole 11 pages. Well, the reason we know, now know why the, the banks didn't want you to get the whole 11 pages copy at the time was that you would never go ahead with the loan because then the fraud would be revealed. But the fraud isn't revealed normally for three or four years until suddenly people start coming, uh, say, to BFCSA or wherever to say, well, I can't afford my mortgage and I don't know what to do next. And these are unaffordable loans. So the fraud is in the approval, the rover approval. They should never have been approved in the first place. But you can stop this tomorrow. All you've got to do if you're the government is just demand that the banks hand over the copy of the loan application form at the point of signing. Mm. That's important, Denise. Now, let's just go back through that again to reiterate. So you're saying... Customers sign three pages that turns into 11. The missing eight pages are added through some computer uh, software program that bumps up their incomes to justify uh, the loans they're taken out. And that document you called, was it a tracker document? No, no, that was the loan application form. Then there's three other forms that people should be given the moment they're executed. In other words, the signature is on the page. And for instance, the valuation, where the signature will be by the valuer. Yes, the bank own the valuation, they pay for it. 
but they also charge the customer for the same valuation and they also charge them for the insurance policy. Yet the people are never given to see the policy, what the conditions are. So the bank can change the conditions anytime they like because the customer's never seen that document. So what I'm calling for is the loan application form, the serviceability calculator, which as you said was the was was the computer um, uh, servicing uh, uh, calculator, and the tracker. The tracker tracks everything from the very inception of you applying for a loan through to the settlement of the loan when the money is paid into your account. So we want copies of the service calculator, the tracker, the valuation, and of course the loan application form. And if people are given copies of all that prior to the money being paid, you can then have a fighting chance of saying, well, hang about, there's a bit of fraud here. Mm. And we may not want the loan after all. I received a harrowing phone call uh, during the middle of this commission. I tried to get, I think his name was Jim, on the show. He told me a story about how his family had bought a a block they were going to develop and it was going to be their superannuation plan. They'd made every payment, met their loan obligations, but all of a sudden uh, the the bank contacted them and said, look, uh, we're calling this loan. You have to make up this difference. And if you don't, uh, we're going to uh, sell it off from under you. And uh, basically they had a ridiculously short time frame to do this. You're saying that somewhere in those missing eight pages, they've decided to fiddle with the figures to call in uh, these loans on, on people such as Jim. Oh, that particular... Um uh, gentleman is probably referring to what is in the contract itself. Now, they do get a copy of the contract, but that's back to our earlier conversation that, uh, as Deloisio pointed out, that as a lawyer, that they're totally complex and people are unable to look at the right sections that they should be looking at in order to determine whether or not there's a seven-day call on the loan. So that's a different loan. That's a business loan. All right. The ones I'm dealing with usually are residential loans, meaning they might be for the same purposes, whether people have set them up in a family trust or a business. If they're set up that way, then there's different legal remedies and ramifications. Would the government protect consumer victims of of predatory lending by ordering the major banks to extinguish a debt on sight unseen purchases. Now, this is something you're passionate about. What are sight unseen purchases and how does uh, this uh, sort of uh, a spruiking of property uh, uh, result in some very unfortunate outcomes? Well, they're almost guaranteed unfortunate outcomes if you're buying sight unseen because what we have found is common is the valuations are usually friendlies that are in line with an inflated figure of an average per person of 150 up to $200,000 per loan. So that the people think if they're buying sight unseen, they're told the value of this property is four or $500,000 and they get a loan for that figure, which they should never be approved for anyway. And then on the basis of their having an asset, um, the the um, because that's asset lending and that is uh, also uh, problems there in terms of whether it's legal or not. And then the other 
problem is that when people take on these particular loans, they cannot then understand the demographics of where they've purchased, of whether it's a long-term thing or not. But the average overvaluation by the valuers is a roughly $150,000 per loan. That's just extortion. So that people are behind the eight ball to start with. It's like me selling you a property in WA that I know is worth uh, 300000 Yet I've told you the price of it is 450000 And you go and get a loan for four you You've got to pay interest on that extra 150 And you could have flown over here and bought it for three hundred as the going rate in that area. So I, admittedly, I haven't heard too much about these sight unseen purchases, and you're you've told me offline that this is uh, promoted through various banking channels, uh, particularly in mining communities and the like. Well, no, they're not all in mining communities, by the way, but they're invariably hiked up. Some of them are down by the beaches, uh, but they're invariably hiked up about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in terms of the valuation. We've proven that time and time again. Uh, I've spoken about this many times and I've put it in reports to Parliament, but they don't get read that often, unfortunately. But what is happening is, is what I was talking about in 2003. I warned that the spruikers that were out there, spruiking people into creating wealth seminars, that's why one of the major banks has already dumped immediately its creating wealth division. And this is what will get the banks in the biggest trouble of the lot, um, is the creating division. I didn't know at the time I was going after the spruikers uh, that the spruikers were being funded by the banks themselves. I didn't know that at the time. I found that out later. There are incentives for these spruikers to be able to... I mean, who can afford to put on... Um, you know, a venue of a thousand people in a five-star luxury hotel. Who can afford to do that unless the banks are behind it? So what we found is that every one of these venues, and I went to a couple of them, I went to several of them, there are always a line of bank reps at the back of the room. So the minute the spruker has G'd them all up that they should buy, buy into the property market, the investment market, this is what is the basis and the crux of, of um, what has made uh, Australia in danger of having masses of property being purchased by people who can't afford to pay the payments. So those that bought them, the buyers, couldn't afford to pay the payments or the shortfalls. There weren't always tenants in these properties. There were tenants, but it was spasmodic, and half the time some of the tenants didn't pay the rent anyway, or they they couldn't get a tenant for six months, things like that. Well, the pensioners couldn't afford to pay the payments, uh, uh, the shortfalls, let alone if they were left for six months with no payments. They've still got to pay the bank. So how did they pay the bank mortgage? Well, because the banks gave them buffer loans, the actual borrowers buffer loans to borrow more money. So that was an extra 50 grand in order to pay the payments during the times when there was no tenants. Now, this is all helping the banks move product, bank mortgages. But it also feeds into the developers 
developing the properties in these mining towns, the beaches, the CBD unit, whatever. People failed all over the place, not just in one sector. So the developers got a lot of money out of this and it boosted the construction industry. So it's all, and the real estate agents were making money out of it and the lawyers were making a monster out of it. And this is what needs to be examined. Well, Denise Braley, I wish we could keep talking, but we better wrap up there. Uh, Yeah, always uh, rather frightening talking to you. And as this house of cards starts to crumble with uh, Australian house prices falling by uh, as much as uh, they did during the global financial crisis, uh, who knows where we'll be in another six months or so. But Denise, uh, thanks for your work and thanks very much for your time here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. You're very welcome, Carl. Thanks so much for listening to The Renegade Economist. Check out the show notes at earthsharing.org.au. If you haven't picked up on it, uh, there's seven weeks left of the weekly Renegade Economist podcast. 